We are continuing our study of Colossians, and so a quick recap of last week. Uh, remember, last week we were covering verses four, chapter two, verses four through eight, uh, and this is uh, we titled that section "Remember This," right? And so, in the verses leading up to that, uh, we see Paul's goal or Paul's prayer, like why Paul was contending in prayer. And he says, like, this was his goal for the church. This was his prayer for the church that, one, that they would be encouraged and comforted in their hearts. Two, that they would be united in love. And three, what we spent the most time on, uh, was that uh, they would come to know and see and grow uh, in the real riches and true treasures of knowing Christ. Right? This is the most valuable thing, is to know Christ, to grow in your relationship with him. That's where the treasure really rides. It's found in Christ. Uh, and so when we got to verse four, Paul says... Um, since in Christ, these are the, where the most valuable things are. I want you to remember that this is where the most valuable thing, uh, this is where the most value is. It's, it's in Christ. It's in knowing him. I want you to remember that for three reasons. And those are the three reasons that we covered uh, last week. They were one, uh, so that we wouldn't be deceived by fine sounding yet hollow arguments and ideas. Two, uh, so that uh, the, the, the church would continue their lives in Christ. Right? And we looked at exactly what Paul kind of meant by what it looks like to, to continue your life in Christ. Uh, we said that it was first receiving Christ by faith through his grace. Uh, we talked about acknowledging God always, uh, being rooted and being built up in Christ, uh, for being strengthened in their faith as they were taught, and finally overflowing with things. And so that was kind of uh, you know, continuing your life in Christ, what it looked like to Paul, at least in that short little list, what it looked like to continue your life in Christ. Uh, and then finally, the third reason uh, that Paul wanted the, the church to remember where this is where the true value lies uh, is so that they would remain disciplined and firm in their faith in Christ. Right? Uh, so Paul keeps pointing back, this is where the value is, this is where the true treasure is, and for these three reasons, I want you to always remember, remember those. For today, uh, we're covering uh, verses 9 through 15, and we're actually going to cover the same verses next week as well. So this is like part one of 9 through 15, and again, we're going to go over it again um, next week. Um, Real quick before we go over it, though, just to kind of also touch back on way back in the beginning when we first started the book of Colossians, and we've kind of repeated this throughout our study, uh, the four major themes that we keep coming back to in the book of Colossians. Um, one, who is God? Okay. Two, who is the church? Like, how does God view the church both individually and collectively together, corporately? Three, uh, the gospel is sufficient and it completely satisfies, right? that it's not jesus and this thing that's going to satisfy you or jesus plus your works that's going to save you or jesus and it no it's the the message that is contained within the gospel the hope that is contained within the gospel that is sufficient for you to save you and it's the only thing that is going to completely satisfy you and then finally uh, the last thing that we see throughout our study is uh, in light of those first three things in light of who is god in light of how does god view us as the church individually and corporately uh, in light of the gospel message being enough for us in light of those three things how then should we respond? What is the correct response to that? In this section today that we're going to cover, we're going to mainly see the first two. Who is God? And specifically, we're going to look at who is Christ. Uh, that's who we're, we're really going to look at. And then next week, uh, when we cover the same verses again, uh, we're going to see because of Christ's work, what does that mean for the church? What does that mean for you individually? What does that mean for us together, together corporately? Um, so again, today, verses uh, 9 through 15, Title of our section for today, The Crucified Christ. The Crucified Christ. Uh, so chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. <clears throat> it says, For in Christ 
All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So again, the main thing that we're going to look at today, who is Christ? Who is Christ? And so in this section, what we see, we're going to look at five things um, that kind of point us to Christ or teach us who, who is Christ. So number one, when we're talking about who is Christ, the first thing is he is the Christ. He is the Christ. Uh, in verse 9, is, as soon as Paul starts this section off, it says, for in Christ. So we have to stop right there. If we're talking about who is Christ, we have to talk about he is the Christ. Uh, if you guys remember way, way back when we first started our study of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, um, um, chapter 1, verse 1, when we were looking at who is Paul, who is Christ, who is all these people, um, we looked at a couple things. Christ, uh, that word, is not like his last name. It's not Jesus Christ, like his last name or anything like that. Christ is a title. Right? Christ is a title. Anybody remember what it means by any chance? Huh? What is it? Not quite. Not quite. Huh? Messiah. Exactly. So Christ is Greek. Messiah is Hebrew. They both mean the same thing. What does it mean in English? Hmm? What? Hmm. What did you say? Close. The anointed one. The anointed one. Yeah. So Christ is Greek. Uh, Messiah is Hebrew. Both of those, they, they mean the same thing. And those words yeah, mean the anointed one in English. All right. And so what is Christ anointed to do? I remember, you guys might remember when Christ is first starting off his ministry and he's in the synagogue and he takes the scroll from Isaiah and he says, uh, he reads a passage from Isaiah and he says, now you guys have seen this scripture fulfilled. He says he was anointed to preach the good news, to heal, to set the prisoner and the captive free through his death and resurrection. So Christ was anointed for a very specific purpose. That's what he was anointed to do. He's the anointed one to do this. Preach the good news, to heal, set the prisoner, the captive free uh, through his death and resurrection. Remember in the Old Testament, kings, prophets, priests, uh, people who would be chosen by God, they were anointed with oil to signify God's choosing, to signify like they're setting apart for a very specific task, service, you know, something along those lines. And when Christ was on earth, there were a couple times where Christ was anointed with oil by people. Uh, but even more than that, though, he was anointed by the Spirit. Right? Remember, he was marked by the Spirit. His full ministry was marked by the Spirit. Now, remember, at Jesus' baptism, when he comes out of the water... The Father declares to everyone, this is my Son whom I love, and in Him I am well pleased. And the Spirit descends upon Him like a dove. And it's from there that the Spirit led Him into the wilderness. It's from there that the Spirit began to lead Him to do whatever it is that you know, he, was, he was supposed to do. And so His ministry was completely marked and led by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit. He's anointed to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. He's anointed to fulfill God's plan of redemption. 
He is the Christ. So when we're thinking of Christ, it's again, it's not a name, it's a title. He is the anointed one to do exactly as God had planned to do. And he was anointed to do that actually from before the beginning. He was set apart from before the beginning. In Psalm chapter 2, it's a messianic, what's called a messianic psalm, which means it basically directly points to, to Christ and speaks of him. It says, Why do the nations conspire and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, he rebukes them in anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Speaking of Christ, this king, this anointed one, this anointed king. And so Christ has been anointed. He's been chosen. He's been set apart for this. So number one, he is the Christ, the Christ. Number two. He is God. Verse 9, continuing in verse 9, it says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives. He is God. If you're thinking of Jesus, you have to think God. Nothing less. He is God. Some people will say he was just a prophet. Some people will say he was a good teacher. Some people will say uh, he was a good man and you know, he, can, you know, he did some nice things for people, this, that, and the other, which is all true. He was a great man. He was a great teacher. He was a prophet. Those are all true. But it doesn't just stop there. He is God. He is God. Genesis chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, we read this earlier back in our study. Hebrews chapter 1 all tell us this, that he is the creator. All things were made by him, through him, for him, and he is the sustainer of all things. In Exodus chapter 3, when, Jesus, when God was having a conversation with Moses at that burning bush, and he's telling Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt to go rescue my people out of slavery. Moses has a bunch of objections. Moses says, okay, well, like, I'm not the one that, you know, that's right for this. I don't know if I can do this, this and the other. And one of his objections is this. Okay, God, well, let's say I do as you say. Let's just hypothetically speaking, let's say I do go back to Israel and I do, uh, you know, what you're telling me to do. Well, what if they ask me, who sent me? I don't even know your name. And the Lord responds to him, I am who I am. Tell them the I am sent you. Tell them the Lord, Yahweh, has sent you. Now when God says that in the burning bush, then you match that in John chapter 8, when Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. And they're challenging him, saying like, oh no, we are God's children. We, we can directly trace our lineage through, through Abraham. So we're God's children. We're children of Abraham. We're children of God. We're good to go. We're saved because of our lineage. We're saved because of our genealogy. And God says, you don't know, or Jesus says, you don't know God. You don't know Abraham. But I know him. I know Abraham. I've seen Abraham. I know him. And the Pharisees challenge him. What do you mean you've seen Abraham? You're, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And what was Jesus' response? Before Abraham was born, I am. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders knew exactly what he meant by that. Meaning the person who was speaking to Moses, that was me. Meaning the person who, who was there when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, that was me. That means the person who was there at the beginning creating all this, creating that genealogy that you guys are so proud of, that was me. When Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, he was directly telling them, I am God. The one that you claim to worship, the one that you claim to know, the one that you claim to think that you guys are all good with. No, that's me. In John chapter 1, 
in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. There was more than one there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And when you jump down to verse 14, he says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, made his dwelling among us. That same person, that Word that made his dwelling among us, is the same one that says here in verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Christ who came in bodily form is the same one, the Word who became flesh. Christ is God. Finally, in John chapter 14, Jesus is, they they finish the Last Supper, Jesus is hours away from being arrested. Hours away from being arrested. And one of his disciples, Philip, and he says, says to Jesus, Jesus, if you would just show us the Father, that would be enough for us. Just show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. And Jesus is like, haven't you been with me this whole time? Haven't you been with me this whole time? How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen him. If you've heard me, you've heard him. If you know me, you know him. I and the Father are one. Again, Christ telling everyone, I am God. I am not just like him. I am not just close to him. I am not just hearing from him. I am God. One of the hard things about trying to grasp that is, of course, the, the Trinity, right? Like, how can we serve one God, yet there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? It doesn't take a genius to figure out one and three are not the same. There is something, and I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but it's, you know, it's worth mentioning again. There is something to say the, the, about the, the mystery and the majesty of the Trinity. There is something about it, because there's something about not being able to fully grasp how the Trinity truly works, because there truly is nothing like it. If I didn't know um, that the American dollar was green, for example, and, and I don't know the definition of green, like I don't have a picture in my mind, but if you were to say, oh, it's kind of like the color of the leaves on a tree, or it's kind of like the, the colors of these here, or it's kind of like, oh, okay, I can kind of put that together, because it's like something else. But because the Trinity is truly unlike anyone or anything else, what can I compare it to? The best way that I've heard it explained is this. I myself, I am one in being and one in person. Okay? I'm one in being, one in person. Being meaning I'm a human being, that is what I am. And one in person, that is who I am. I am Aman. Everything that makes up Aman is what makes me, you know, what makes me distinct from Dawit. Dawit and I are both human beings. Yes, we are equal in that way, but we are not the same person. Just because we're equal in being doesn't mean we're equal in person. This human being is Amman, that human being is Dawit. Right? We're distinct from each other. God is one in being. What he is, is God. Who he is, is three in person. Father, Son, and Spirit. I am one in being, one in person. He is one in being, three in person. Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, because there is nothing like him that we can directly compare it to, it's still hard for our mind to wrap around. How is that possible? Because it's not that the father one day has the mask of the father on and then takes that off and then now today he's the son and today he's the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. Distinct from each other, three persons. Yet what they are, equal, one God. Only one God. We don't worship three gods, we worship one. He's one in being, three in person. 
But just because we don't fully grasp or like can't really fully comprehend exactly how that works, it doesn't change who Jesus is, though. Jesus is very clear about who he is. He is God. He does not claim to be less than God. He does not claim to be, you know, just, just only a prophet or only a teacher or only this. He is God, period. So he is the Christ. He is God. And now when you're the Christ and when you're, when you're God, right, there's, there's power <laughs> that comes with that. Uh, there's uh, authority that comes with that. There's headship that comes with that. And number three, that's exactly what the third thing is. Verse 10. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. When we're talking about who is Christ, he is the head over every power and over every authority. To be the head of every power, to, to, to be above every authority, that assumes something. That's assuming something. That assumes you possess greater power and authority. To be the head of every power, to be above every authority, that is assuming that you possess a greater power and a greater authority than everything else. And that is exactly the case with Christ. He possesses a greater power, a greater authority than anyone and anything else. There's a prayer by a man named King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. In that prayer, or in that situation, the reason why this king, this king of, of Judah is praying is he's all of a sudden taken surprise by this large army, this vast, it's like a super army. All these countries have come together, banded together, and they have come marching towards Israel undetected. And they're only about a one or two day march away from their city gates. And he has no idea. Now, this is a king, though. It's not like he's nobody. This is a king who has a massive army himself. When you go through the Chronicles and you add up how many fighting men he has in his army, it's a massive army that totaled almost 1.2 million people. He has a massive army. And yet when he has this, you know, he's the king, he has military experience, he has this massive army behind him. When he sees this huge army that's now coming towards him, he doesn't reach to his own strength. He doesn't reach to his own expertise or anything like that. He doesn't reach for his own fighting men. What he does is he begins to pray. And in his prayer, part of his prayer is this, God, Father, Father, or excuse me, God, power and might are in your hands. Power and might are in your hands. He understood where real power is. He understood where real authority comes from. He understood that, yes, I am a king, but you're the one who made me king. I am a king, but you're the one where power and might really lies. I am a king, but you're the one with the real army. I am a king, but it's you who's above me. Power and might are in your hand. There is no earthly power, no earthly position, no earthly title, no earthly nothing that is greater than the power and authority of Christ. There's nothing. And there is no spiritual authority, whether good or bad, that is greater than Christ. No one can claim equality. No one can claim greater. No one can claim anything even remotely close to Christ. And when Christ returns... He will come in power. He will come in that authority. He will come fully glorified and we will see him for who he really is. Every power, every authority, every president, every dictator, every monarch, every angel, every demon, everyone and everything, every knee will bow 
And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That He's the King. He will come in power. And whether we do it willingly now or forcefully then, everyone will recognize, acknowledge, and bend their knee to the name of Christ. He is the Lord. So after you talk about Him being the Christ, the Anointed One, after you talk about Him being God, after you talk about Him being the power and the authority, the head, that's it, like he's, this is the King. Verse 12 mentions that He was buried and that He died. Twice in verse 14 and 15, there's mention of a cross. Number four, he is humble. Humble. He is so humble. A king as great as this came and made his dwelling among us. But this time when he first came, he didn't come in power. He didn't come in that authority. He didn't come with, you know... The, 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 as, as, a, as you would expect a king to come. As you would expect someone who is the head and power and authority over everyone and everything to come. He didn't come as a fully grown man. He came as a baby. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger. All next to all the farm animals. You can imagine the one who holds all of creation, who sustains all of creation, being held in a womb. You can imagine baby Jesus taking his first steps, needing a diaper change, speaking his first words, which weren't really his first words, but, but you can imagine. A God like this who came humbly when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem towards the end of his life, when everybody's holding the palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, we have a new king, right? Their idea of this Messiah was that this Messiah was going to be an earthly king. This Messiah was going to restore the, the, the kingdom of David on earth. This Messiah was going to be the one who's going to overthrow the Roman government so that Israel could finally be their own people again. And so they're shouting and receiving Jesus as their earthly king. Now, when he was riding into that city as this king, did he ride in on a big white horse with a big crown, with the, you know, the military marching behind him, ready to conquer Rome and this other? No, he came on a donkey. On a donkey. Humble. And after he rode in as a king, it was just a week later that he was on the cross. He came into this world through humble beginnings and he ended up dying the most humiliating death. The absolutely most humiliating death. He was flogged mercilessly. After they placed the crown of thorns on his head, they beat him over his head. They forced him to carry his cross up to that execution site. They put three large nails into him, one in each wrist, placing his feet one on top of the other, and another one to go through the feet and into the wood. And for six hours, he hung on that cross. Six hours. Just to bleed out. Struggling to breathe. And he hung up there until the full punishment that would bring us peace with God was fully paid for. He didn't come down a moment too soon, a moment too late. 
not until the full punishment was laid upon him. Was then he finally gave up his spirit and he died. God who is the Christ, he is God, he is the power and authority over everyone and everything, would come down humbly like this to die a death like this. It's humble. There's no other way to put it. That's humble. Number five. The same one who died. Who died this kind of death. Who died a death that he didn't deserve. The died, who died the death that we deserved. He's alive. Verse nine. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives. Lives. Not did live. Not once upon a time lived. He is the head over every power and authority, not used to be, or not was, and no longer is. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. He was raised. The tomb that Jesus was laid in is now empty. He is alive. He's alive. In Acts chapter 3, verse 15 Peter is having this conversation with the religious leaders. And they're, they're, they're having a trial, basically, because Peter is preaching the name of Christ and performing these miracles, and they, they want him to stop. They want him to stop. So they come, they bring him in, and they begin to threaten him, basically. And Peter begins to convict. He tells them the truth. He says, you guys, you killed the author of life. Is what he said to them. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Meaning... That death, not even death, could hold the very author of life. You killed the author of life, couldn't hold him. You killed the author of life, but he was raised. You killed the author of life, and now we have seen him. He's alive. He's alive. This is who Christ is. He is the Christ, anointed to do something, anointed with a very specific task. He is God, and we cannot afford to think of him at, at, at any point lower than that. He is the power and authority over everyone and everything, and yet he came so humbly, with pure humility, and he is alive. It is so important that we have the right view of Christ. The right view of Christ. Now you can get to see just a little bit more why Paul was so fired up. This is where the treasure lies. This is where the real value is. Do you know Christ? Do you know him like this? Do you believe him to be this? Paul says, where else can you find value and treasure like this? The more you get to know Christ, that's where you will truly see the real value, the real riches. That's where you'll truly experience the satisfaction that only him can provide you. Nothing and no one else. The more we get to see who Christ is, we've said this a lot, the more you get to know who God is, the more you have the right view of who God is, the more you have the right view of everything else, including yourself. If this is who my Christ is, if this is who my Jesus is, the more I get to see myself correctly, the more I get to see my situation correctly, the more I get to see my problems correctly, the more I get to see my sin correctly, 
The more I get to see, okay, Lord, if I'm struggling with this thing in my life right now, I'm struggling with this question. I'm struggling with this provision. I'm struggling with this sin. I'm struggling with these you know, uh, uncertainties. I'm struggling with whatever it might be. Yet I know who you are. If this is who my Christ is, what am I worried for? If this is who my Christ is, I'm good. If this is my, who my Christ is, then I know I'm loved. If this is who my Christ is, then I know I'm going to be taken care of. If this is who my Christ is, then I know I will have peace. If this is who my Christ is, I will have the right view of everything and everyone else. So we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to pray. And we are going to, whatever it is, again, that the Lord is asking of you right now. Whatever it is that the Lord is convicting you of right now. Some of us, it might be, Lord, help me to always see this. Help me to always have this view. Help me to grow in this view even more of you. That I may know you for who you really are. Not that just my idea of you. Not just my, my own you know, misconceptions of you. But help me to know you for who you really are. For some of us, help me just to believe. Lord, I, I, I hear what the scriptures have to say. I've, I've heard this before, but I'm having a hard time believing. Lord, just help me believe. Whatever it is, it's going to be different for everybody. Whatever it is, we're going to take some time to just pray about that. I want you to keep in mind, um, here's another verse. Keep in mind. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 and 4. Um, it says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord, the Lord himself is the rock eternal. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast. The steadfast mind is the mind that is fixed upon Him. The steadfast mind is the one that fixes their eyes upon Christ. The steadfast mind is the one who has the right view of Christ. And it says that you will keep at perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. It's hard to trust in someone you don't know. How can you trust in Christ if you don't know? So keep those verses in mind. We pray. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Ask him to, to help you trust you. Whatever it is, again, uh, we'll take a few minutes to do that.